Hey listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems and what you can do to solve them. I'm Rob Wibblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. When we ran our 80,000 Hours user survey last year, the most requested topic for new podcast episodes was exploring new problem areas. In that spirit, today's interview with Nina Sheik is on the apparently growing issue of misinformation and disinformation, including the rise of so-called deepfakes, that is, uh, fake videos that can't be distinguished from the real thing. Kieran and I independently loved her podcast with Sam Harris last year and thought that she would be the perfect person to talk to as a follow-up to our interview with Tristan Harris last year. Nina thinks this problem might be as important as climate change, say, because as she says, everything exists within this information ecosystem. It encompasses everything. We haven't done enough research to properly weigh in on that ourselves, but I did present Nina with some early objections, such as, say, won't people quickly learn that audio and video can be faked and so we'll only take them seriously if they come from a trusted source? And if it's such a big problem, why haven't we had, you know, really big uh, deepfake scandals already? And interestingly, uh, could the ability to deny that you've said anything controversial actually lead to more privacy in a way? We also talk about a bunch of other topics, including the history of disinformation and, and groups who sow disinformation professionally, how deep fake pornography is used to attack and silence female activists, and the coolest positive uses of this new technology. All right, without further ado, here is Nina Sheik. Today, I'm speaking with Nina Sheik. Nina is an author and consultant on how emerging technologies are affecting politics and international relations. Last year, she published the book Deepfakes, The Coming Infocalypse, which looks at how technology, in particular the ability to make sophisticated deepfakes, is aiding the spread of mis- and disinformation, and potentially making society even less connected to reality than it already was. Nina has advised many people and organizations on this topic, including Joe Biden and a former Secretary General of NATO, and been featured in the MIT Tech Review, The Times, and CNN, among many others. She originally studied history, politics, and language at University College London, and then the University of Cambridge. And she is nothing if not international, speaking seven languages and living across London, Berlin, and Kathmandu, at least until the COVID-19 pandemic, I assume. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Nina. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I hope we'll get to talk about what effect we should expect new technologies to have on society's weak connection to reality, and what could be done to make our information ecosystem just a little bit less of a madhouse. But first, what are you working on at the moment, and why do you think it's really important? I am working on the researching the synthetic future because my kind of foray into this started with deepfakes and disinformation. And I very quickly realized that it's actually much more profound than that. I think what we're facing is an AI-led paradigm change when it comes to the future of human creation, content creation, and even human perception. So I advise companies and organizations and individuals on kind of some of the exponential tech-led changes that are underway and think about how that might impact politics and society and geopolitics. All right, we'll talk about all of that right now. Um, I imagine that a lot of listeners have thought a little bit about this topic of misinformation before, but if they're really new, they might be interested in going back and listening to my conversation with Tristan Harris in episode 88, which covers some related issues to what we're talking about here and might give you some useful background. But briefly, what is it that you think people don't appreciate about the current failures of our information ecosystem? Well, I think the starting point has to be the conceptual understanding that What we've built over the past 30 years with regard to our information ecosystem is something that's completely unprecedented in the history of humanity. And of course, it starts with the invention of the Internet and the so-called age of information. Unfortunately, a lot of the kind of utopian founders, early utopian founders of the Internet, assumed that this would be an unmitigated good for humanity that everyone would be able to access 
all information and that somehow this would propel human progress forward. I think that is a very kind of a read which slightly interprets the true nature of of humans as being inherently good. And what we know is that that is not the true nature of humans. Humans are neither inherently good nor bad. It's, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. And these exponential technologies, which have so radically changed our information ecosystem over the past 30 years, specifically the internet, social media, the smartphone, and now increasingly the age of synthetic media, is just something that we haven't even begun to understand or comprehend in terms of what it's done. And we certainly haven't begun to understand how to build a safer information ecosystem. And I think this is really one of the critical challenges of our time. I think it's something that is just as important as climate change because everything exists within this information ecosystem. It encompasses everything. Everyone who will be listening to this podcast exists within it. And the only way you can kind of opt out of it is if you kind of decide to go off the grid completely and live like a hermit in, you know, deep, dark forest. Yeah, I still remember when we used to think that the internet was going to cause everyone to be super informed and make society a whole lot more rational. I, th- I think people still thought that in 2010. They definitely thought it in, in, in 2000. It, uh, I guess yeah. we're, we're, all, we're all so young and naive and <laughs> life right. is good. And you saw that with like the reaction to like, especially with my political hat on, like you saw that, you know, when the Arab Spring started happening, how the first reaction was like, wow, this is people standing up for <laughs> democracy using the internet. This is amazing. And, you know, 10 yeah. years down the line, we know that it actually is far more complicated than that. Yeah, I uh, I still remember my uh, initial reaction to the Arab Spring, and it was uh, uh, <laughs> inaccurate in retrospect. <laughs> so, yeah, extremely naive. What are some useful examples that people might not have already uh, heard about of deep fakes or other similar sorts of chicanery being used to to trick a lot of people into believing something that that actually causes harm in the real world? So, I think my starting point would be just to point out that. When people talk about deep fakes, they often talk about them in isolation. And deep fakery is just a latest emerging threat in the context of an information ecosystem that's already become inundated with mis- and disinformation. Particularly over the past 10 years, again, my background being in geopolitics, I've been able to see how political events and societies have been transformed by a lot of visual disinformation that's been shared online. I saw it in the context of the Russian invasion of eastern Ukraine and annexation of Crimea, in the context of Brexit, in the context of how in some countries like Myanmar, which was pretty much shut off from this information ecosystem until the junta decided to open up almost overnight in 2014, Facebook was used as as a platform where a lot of cheap fakes, so this kind of the forebear to deep fakes, manipulated imagery, which has nothing to do with AI, right? Something taken out of context, miscontextualized, clipped, was even used to incite things like genocide. So the first thing to say about deep fakes is that it just is the latest evolving threat in a spectrum of disinformation, which has increasingly come to include visual media. And that's no surprise because in this ecosystem, we increasingly interact with digital and visual media. Again, that's no surprise because it's the most compelling way to communicate. We as humans have a cognitive bias known as processing fluency so that when we see something that looks or sounds right, we believe it to be true. So a lot of visual disinformation can, in some cases, be even more compelling than the written word. So I'm sure we'll get into specific case studies of deep fakery that exists right now. But to answer your first this question, I would just say, 
rather than talking about an example of a deep fake that exists in isolation, I would say it's um, the continuation of this trend. Yeah, I guess possibly we should back up and just explain to people who haven't been keeping up what is possible with deep fakes and I guess other manipulation of video and, and audio. As far as I understand it, basically, if you have a lot of samples of someone's voice, like I guess people have with with uh, us in our various interviews, you can get people to like any voice to say basically anything that you want. And at least humans can't can't tell the difference. Sometimes, sometimes the machine learning techniques can tell that they're fake. But to humans, it's pretty indistinguishable. And I guess with video, if you have a lot of video of someone's face, and then you want to like put their face onto someone else's face in a video, you can basically do that. It looks like pretty seamless. It only requires a normal computer that most people have. So it's a pretty it's a pretty accessible technology. And again, maybe maybe with like sophisticated forensics, you could figure out that it, that it's fake. Or if someone did it badly, you could figure it out. But anyone can create like a reasonably convincing fake video of someone of people doing things. <laughs> Is that about right? So a deep fake is essentially a piece of media, a piece of synthetic media, that's to say a piece of fake media that's either manipulated by AI or increasingly as the technology improves, entirely generated by AI. And the first thing to say is that the ability of AI to do this is nascent. And a huge breakthrough came only in 2014 when um, somebody called Ian Goodfellow, who's now actually one of the lead AI scientists at Apple, basically when he was a graduate student, published a paper on um, this challenge of how to actually get a machine learning system to create content that didn't exist before was a really difficult one. Thanks to the kind of revolution in deep learning over the past decade, AI was very good at categorizing things. That's why we can get things like autonomous cars, but actually getting it to create something new was a difficult challenge. And what Goodfellow did was that he decided he could pit two machine learning systems or two neural networks against each other in an adversarial game. And he found that actually once you did that, it could actually generate content, which was a huge breakthrough in the sense that we hadn't been able to see a machine learning system do this before. So it's only in 2014 that this first paper was emerging at the cutting edge of artificial intelligence. And a few years down the line in 2017, that's when, as this field was developing, we started to see the emergence of the first deepfakes online. I'm sure we'll get into that in in the form of non-consensual pornography. But again, the first thing to point out is the unbelievable ability of AI to actually manipulate and generate entirely synthetic media is new. We're at the very, very beginning of this journey. And this can come in many many different forms, right? It can come in audio format. It can come in video format. It can come as an image. It can even come as synthetic text. And one of the unique things about synthetic media, which is very relevant to our conversation today, is its ability to recreate humans. And this is now manifesting in two ways. One, AI is starting to be used to create entirely synthetic people. You already see that with thispersondoesnotexist.com, for example, where you, where you go to that website, you click the page, and you see AI generating autonomously an image of a person who does not exist, who to you or I looks absolutely real, photorealistic. We would not be able to tell that that's a person that doesn't exist. And increasingly, AI will be able to do that also in audiovisual format, so voice synthesis, video synthesis. And the second way this is manifesting is, again, going back to this unique ability of AI to create humans synthetically, is that it is being used to clone or hijack people's biometrics. So you can create fake media of people, real people who do exist. And one way it can do this is by cloning voices, 
cloning faces. And this is where the whole kind of public hysteria or interest about deepfakes has been around. This unique ability of AI to clone your biometrics. And you're right that as this field was emerging, it required a lot of training data. So I was working with an AI company in 2018. And as a research project, we we were basically trying to bring to a group of global leaders who I was advising, included Biden and um, the former NATO Secretary General, the power of this emerging technology. And we wanted to present them a case study. So we wanted to use AI to synthesize Donald Trump's voice to say something really silly that would like grab their attention. And in 2018, that still required hours and hours of training data, the end result wasn't that good. You could kind of tell it sounded a bit like Trump, but not really. But fast forward three years down the line, and now you already have companies saying they can synthesize someone's voice with five seconds of audio. So you no longer really? need yeah. You no longer huh. need to be a prolific public persona in order for your biometrics to be cloned or hijacked. Obviously, there'll be numerous commercial applications like licensing digital images. If you're, uh, your likeness, if you're a celebrity or a politician, is going to become a big business. But yeah. it also means that everybody potentially is vulnerable to having their digital identity, their, their biometrics hijacked by an anonymous actor and, you know, not even without their consent, but without their knowledge. Yeah. And where are we on the technology to detect whether something is is real or fake? I guess at the moment, it seems like sometimes we can and sometimes we can't. And we don't know whether like at full maturity of this technology, whether it's going to be the case that you'll be able to tell or, or whether it might just be that eventually these, I guess, what they call generalized adversarial networks. Is that right? Yeah. Or whether they'll be able to generate audio and video that is indistinguishable even to like the, the best forensic technology. Yeah. So again, on detection, we're Way behind, but it's an area of AI research where there's increasing interest, especially because deepfakes have become such an area for fruitful public conversation and debate. You're absolutely right to point out that the models that do exist now, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done because the kind of models that have been put out that they say, oh, we can detect deep fakes with 90% accuracy or like 95% accuracy. That's only true for the training data that those models have been trained on, right? So there isn't actually a universal model that works with deep fakes in the wild. And whenever I kind of talk to AI researchers about the technical challenges in this, part of the problem is how do you get enough training data to train your models in a way that will work in the wild. And also because there's going to be so many different ways of actually generating the synthetic media, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to have one model that will be able to detect them all. You're going to have to have a multi-layer kind of approach. Having said that, there are some really interesting companies that work in this space. Sensity is one of them. They are actually a startup based in Amsterdam. They were the first kind of startup to look into deepfake detection. Very technically difficult something that is going to be a constant adversarial game. I think it only works if you kind of look at it from a cybersecurity kind of perspective where you understand that every time you build a you know decent detector, the generator is going to outwit it. And you're never going to, I think, have like a perfect detector that works for all synthetic media in the wild. So I think detection as a solution can only be a risk mitigation strategy. And it's something that I think increasingly companies are going to have to invest in as part of their cybersecurity strategy. But the other really interesting point, which you just mentioned, is that given the adversarial nature of these kind of neural networks pitted against each other, 
the jury is still out, and uh, AI researchers who I talk to have differing views on this, as to whether or not you get to a point where the synthetic media generation becomes so good that even an AI detector can't find something in the DNA of that piece of media that it's actually synthetic. It's clear that to the human eye or using any kind of digital forensics techniques, which is currently still still something that is being done because deepfakes are not ubiquitous yet and there's a long way to go in terms of how sophisticated they'll become, that is going to become redundant pretty quickly. Humans are not going to be able to tell. Not only because the fidelity will improve, but because as they become ubiquitous, it's going to be an impossible task like to have a human... It's just too much work. Yeah, it's, 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 just, it's going to be too much work and we won't be able to tell anyway. So you have to think about alternative solutions. And obviously detection is one solution, but there are difficult challenges ahead for, for detection as well. Yeah, I'm I'm very worried about misinformation and disinformation spreading online and convincing people of things in general. And I'm I'm just uh, personally kind of uncertain how much impact on the margin that these deep fake images and audio are going to have. Like there's already lots of disinformation, lots of silly things that people believe. And then as this technology gets better, is it going to cause a massive increase or, or not? I'm I'm just kind of unsure. So I'm curious to to probe the arguments for and against that. I suppose it is fairly new, but it's been around for a couple of years now that people could have been using this technology in order to push their agenda, I suppose especially like bad actors. I mean, I've been following this a little bit for a couple of years, and I, th- I think over that time, people have predicted that there would be more chaos perhaps created by, by deepfakes than what we've seen already. Is there any reason why perhaps things aren't worse <laughs> today than they, than, than they might be? Are there things that are, that are limiting the influence of deepfakes and like other synthetic media can have as of now? So the first thing I'd say is that I don't think it's right to think of deepfakes and existing mis- and disinformation as two separate issues. Deepfakes are merely the more kind of sophisticated form of visual disinformation that is going to become increasingly ubiquitous in in already what is a corroding information ecosystem. So when people kind of suggest that, oh, deepfakes haven't been as harmful as kind of the existing modes of mis- and disinformation, I don't see why those are two different issues, right? I think it is absolutely vital when you talk about mis- and disinformation to underline that way before deepfakes even started doing damage, old forms of mis- and disinformation were already doing a significant amount of real-world harm. But then getting to the issue of deepfakes more specifically, the reason why perhaps they haven't been seen to do as much damage as sometimes has been predicted, at least in kind of hysterical media reporting, and this is particularly... Particularly relevant to the realm of politics, right? A lot of the kind of fears around deep fakes was that somehow an election would be swung, or you know, what happens if Kim Jong Un releases a deep fake saying he's nuking America, and then we're in like the nuclear Armageddon scenario. And the reason why we haven't had that yet is one, because existing forms of mis and disinformation when it comes to politics are already devastatingly effective. Uh, so there's no need to make a deep fake right now because, again, unlike what is sometimes perceived as being true from like the historical reporting, the barriers to entry in terms of making a very sophisticated video deep fake are a lot higher than people think. That's not to say that those barriers are going to exist forever because we've already touched upon this field of technology is evolving so quickly that any kind of restrictions you see right now are not because of ethical concerns. It's purely to do with technical limitations. The third thing to say is that 
they are already having a really pernicious effect on political discourse, but perhaps not in the way that people think. And this refers to something known as the liar's dividend, which was coined in the context of deep fakes by two academics, but actually it's true of all mis- and disinformation, and it's true of a corroding information ecosystem. And that is that the more people understand that anything can be faked, right, including video, which until now we've tended to see as an extension of our own perception. This is why video is so compelling in a court of law when it's presented as evidence. We understand that when we see video in the movies or in the cinema, it's make-believe, but we've tended to think of that degree of video manipulation as something that's beyond our reach, right? It's only a very well-resourced actor like a Hollywood studio, which has multi-million dollar budgets and teams of special effects artists that can do that kind of video manipulation. So when we understand that even video can be manipulated in this way thanks to AI, we start becoming more critical of all media, including authentic media. So that is already a real-world harm that deepfakes are having even before they become ubiquitous. People are starting to question the authenticity and veracity of authentic media, which is pretty devastating in a world where kind of trust in digital media is absolutely essential for society, politics, somehow functioning. And I have a really good example of this it was um, last year when the George Floyd video came out, his, you know, the awful video of, of this man being suffocated to death slowly, that was so visceral, so brutal, so powerful that it united millions of people together in protest, not only in the United States, but across the entire world. And at the time, I just submitted the manuscript for my book. And I was thinking to myself, you know, it's not going to be long before a video like that is even going to be questioned as to whether or not it's actually authentic or it really happened or if it's true. And even I was surprised at how quickly that happened. And it came from a really unlikely person. Her name is Dr. Winnie Hartstrong. She was a Republican candidate standing for the House of Representatives. She has a PhD and she's an African-American woman. And she basically released a 23-page academic report into why George Floyd's death was a deepfake hoax. And she argued in that paper that George Floyd had actually died in 2016 and that what we saw in that video was actually a former NBA player and the former game show host, their bodies, and George Floyd's face had been swapped into the video using AI to make it look like he was in the video and that Derek Chauvin, the police officer, was actually a former game show host. Now, she went and did like pretty public campaign about why this was a deepfake host. She was invited on people's podcasts. She wrote the paper. There was a website. But in 2020, her impact was still limited, right? I only came across it because I was a deepfake researcher and I was looking for something like this. And it kind of blew my mind. But in 2024 or in 2028 or in 2030, given how polarized democratic society has become, especially on these issues around identity politics and race, you can see how people might start believing, depending on whoever the influencer was that was telling them that this video wasn't authentic, that it was a completely fake, deep fake thing, that people might start believing that. So there is already a real world harm of deep fakes even before they become ubiquitous in enhancing the liar's dividend. And last but not least, and I shouldn't forget this, and I don't forget it, 
The other real-world harm that already exists is in non-consensual pornography. The first application of deep fakes when they emerged at the end of 2017, so they emerged on Reddit. This anonymous Redditor calling himself deep fakes, portmanteau of deep learning and fakes, kind of figured out how to use some of the open source tools that were emerging out of the AI research community to make his own fake porn videos where he face swapped celebrities' faces onto the bodies of real porn stars in films. And when I saw that at the end of 2017, I was like, wow, this is so different from somebody's face being photoshopped onto the body of a porn star, right? These women are alive in these films. They're laughing. They're they're moving. They have different the expressions. expressions. Are believable. So a real cut above Photoshop. And since then, since the end of 2017, there's an entire deep fake porn ecosystem online. And of course, it's not only female celebrities who are targeted. Increasingly, actually, it's normal women. So your wife, your mother, your sister, your colleagues, your friends, and alarmingly also minors. And because the kind of easiest form of deep fake generation is an image, right? A video is still a much more challenging piece of synthetic media to create, you've already seen apps out there where you can just take an image of a woman clothes and, you know, you can generate an image of her nude just by running that through your app. And my, my friend Henry Azure, who's a, a brilliant deepfake researcher, did this investigation in the summer where he actually found a deepfake porn bot being hosted on Telegram which was doing that, just generating nude images of women. There were over 100,000 images of normal women being shared on public Telegram channels, and that included many images of minors. So undeniably kind of gendered phenomenon, almost 100% targeted against women, but done obviously without their consent and often without their knowledge with their data being scraped from social media. Yeah, we'll come back to the deepfake pornography in a minute. To back up, yeah, I suppose there's two different things that you could worry about with synthetic media. One might be that people would remain really credulous and just be constantly fooled all the time by synthetic media that's that's completely made up. The alternative would just be that people become incredibly cynical and stop believing anything in in particular. And it sounds like you basically think that the latter is more likely, that people are going to eventually realize that none of this audio or video is very believable. And then they just become skeptical about anything they see on the news or anything they see online because any of it could be completely constructed. And then maybe you pull out witnesses who say they saw George Floyd getting strangled, be like, well, these could just be completely fake people because we can just make, you know, we can make people out of whole cloth now and then just even get, you know, GPT-3 or something else to generate text for them to say. There's almost no limit to, to the amount of like complete fantasy world that you could construct if you were willing to put in the time. And so why would you believe anything you see? Absolutely. And I think that is my more prevalent fear. Again, just thinking about it in the context of how does a democracy function in the age of kind of exponential tech-led change we're living through. The first view that, oh, people will be fooled is like the is the immediate reaction that people come to, right? But you can become more digitally literate. If you look at younger generations, for example, who like engage with lots of synthetic content, whether it's like Instagram filters or CGI generated virtual influences and avatars, you know, they they understand in a way instinctively that perhaps, you know, your mom or my mom or your dad might not, that, that that's not real, it's manipulated media. So I think over time with digital literacy, you can kind of figure out to, you know, have a degree of critical awareness about you as you navigate the information ecosystem. But it has to be said that, you know, one half of the world, which isn't connected into this information ecosystem yet, predominantly in Africa and India, will be joining soon within the next decade, you know, where almost all of humanity will have a smartphone and internet access. 
And um, they arguably have even less protection than us in the West. So there is like a really legitimate debate to be had about protecting people who have had no means of kind of building up the digital literacy or being inoculated against this type of manipulated or synthetic media. But I think the far more prevalent risk, especially in the democratic context, is that people become cynical. And that is an existential risk to a liberal democracy, because if you can't agree any set of objective facts or norms to start your debate on, how on earth do you even run a society? And and that's something, again, the liar's dividend, the corrosion of trust, the corrosion of trust in all authentic media, increasing polarization is something that I think is a potential existential threat, at least to democracies. So some people are a bit skeptical that this is going to be as problematic as it might seem. There's a couple of different lines of argument. So, so one would be, you know, we only really developed audio and video recording in the 20th century, or it only like scaled up to the point where, you know, a significant fraction of even important events were being, were being videotaped or, or recorded uh, in, in audio. And so in a sense, before like the year 1900, we were living in this world where there was no way of proving that things happened. There was no way of using video and audio in order to demonstrate things. And so people were stuck in the same kind of state of potential mistrust because all that they, all they would get was like text written down in a newspaper claiming that something happened. And there was no way to, to prove after the fact that it, that it, that it did by showing, showing a video. So you kind of just had to make do with believing that, that particular sources were credibly reporting things that really did happen in text in, in, in an article because there was no alternative. And so maybe we've been in this like funny twilight zone period for the last century where we'd, we figured out how to record audio and video, but we hadn't yet learned to synthesize them. And now we're going back kind of to where we were before 1900, before we had videotapes or before we had photography, where you just have to, you have to have like good sourcing, basically. You have to have people who you believe who can claim, you know, I saw this thing happen myself. So, okay, I see, I see the parallel you're drawing there, but I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing to be like, well, let's go back to the kind of pre-enlightenment age of, uh, (laughs) you know, people just believed whatever they wanted to believe, because this is what you're saying, right? Mm. Like it will become similar to kind of the dark ages where you just believed what was told to you. And, And in this case, by a lack of information, so your, your sources of information were very limited. The same effect can be had in an age of information abundance. It's actually called censorship through noise, where you're inundated with information and there is no distinction between whether it's good information or bad information. Then similarly to like somebody living in the 1600s, you're probably going to believe what your instincts tell you is true, right? The fact that audio and video emerged in the 19th and 20th century as a irrefutable way of documenting evidence and was accepted as that was not necessarily a bad thing. Now, that's not to say that before deepfakes came about, there wasn't visual manipulation in film and audio. I mean, that has a very, very long history going all the way back to, you know, the the birth of modern photography. One of the brilliant early examples is a photograph of Abraham Lincoln, who actually although he was lionized as after his death as this iconic president, during his lifetime, he was beset by rumors of ugliness. So after he was assassinated, a portrait painter needed to find photographs of him looking heroic, and he couldn't find any. So what he did was take an engraving of a Southern politician, 
John C. Calhoun, who ironically was a bitter rival of Lincoln's during his lifetime because they were opposed yeah. on the abolition of slavery. Super slavery, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he took a photograph of Lincoln's head and superimposed it onto Calhoun's body because Calhoun was a kind of politician, you know, had, he, had, he had the gravitas, he had the posture that this portrait painter was looking for. And that was only discovered to be a manipulation, I think, in the 1980s. So 100 years after the fact. The thing that's different now is accessibility, scale, fidelity, and what type of media we're talking about. We're not talking about editing images with Photoshop. It's far more sophisticated than that. Before, we weren't able to say, okay, we're going to take AI and take five seconds of your voice, and now I can clone your voice. You know, So it's not, for me, comparable at all to kind of what has been possible in the past. But I also absolutely agree that if you look at the history of kind of visual or media manipulation, it's been something that's been <laughs> around <laughs> since the birth of kind of modern yeah. media. So again, to me, that just is more of a interesting point about the nature of humanity, right? Technology is just going to be an amplifier of human intention. This human innate desire, it's always going to exist to deceive, to to manipulate, yeah. to and, and a, the visual medium is a very powerful way to, of doing that. Yeah, I guess that, that's a reasonable response that potentially this will take us back to the past, but then the past is pretty bad in a lot of ways. That uh, there was, uh, I'm sure, there was lots of misinformation, and and the fact that you couldn't prove that people did or said anything in in you know 1800 was presumably abused by lots of people. Yeah, this raises a general question where I just it doesn't seem like we have a great metric of how bad is misinformation or how misinformed are typical people over time. So are people more misinformed now than they were 10 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago? It's it's a slight shame perhaps that we don't have a way of tracking that because it means that people can say that things are worse or better than they used to be. And it's just, it just seems very hard to, to prove it one way or the other. Yeah, it's really difficult to answer that because again, there is how do you how do you measure that, right? So yeah, I, I think metric? I think the more important point is again just going back to the the starting point, which is this is a paradigm change in our information ecosystem. So whilst I can't say because how do you track throughout history if people are more informed, less informed, what we do know is true is that we haven't faced such an abundance of bad information in all these sophisticated forms that can proliferate so easily. Again, going back to like a historical example, disinformation and manipulation of the visual record is something as old as humanity itself. But, you know, it would require a lot of effort and specifically going back to visual media. Joseph Stalin was a keen proponent of visual disinformation because, again, we as humans... We have a cognitive bias. When we see something and we think it looks right, we want to believe it to be true. Yeah, how strong is that effect? Because I think this this might be a crux for some people. Uh, it seems like you place a lot of weight on the idea that you know, visual and audio evidence is going to be much more intuitively compelling to people than than lies in text would be. And I'm wondering, like, is it twice as compelling or three times as compelling? Uh, yeah, what's the, what's, what's the measure? I think it's not that text cannot be compelling. It can be compelling, but there have been certain studies to show that, for example, if you... This was a good example. If you say macadamia nuts are related to coconuts, researchers did this, and you just write it, people are just willing to kind of look at that and be like, huh, okay. But if you <laughs> put a picture of macadamia nuts and coconuts next to that text, then they're more likely to believe it. So I'm sure there's a whole body of research to look specifically into 
the visual information angle versus like how compelling or convincing text can be. And I'm not at all saying that text cannot be compelling or convincing. And again, when it comes to synthetic text generation, if you look at what GPT-3 is capable of right now, I can see it being an extremely powerful tool of persuasion and coercion or manipulation because at scale, you could kind of create human conversations or interactions in a way that like is mind blown. There's a great paper you should read by the Middlesbrough Institute of Terrorism, where they kind of tested GPT-3's capabilities to radicalize people online. And it's, it makes for a very scary reading. But again, going back to the visual side here, the reason why I focus on this, and this is by no means saying that synthetic text and text should be discounted, is because the most important medium of human communication right now is audiovisual media. People read less, people interact with text less. The majority of the world who's going to join the information ecosystem in the next kind of 10 years are going to be, well, their literacy levels might be lower than some in Western countries. And it's already two thirds of humanity, that's 67% of people who go to video as their first source of information. You know this, like from the attention economy we've built over the past 30 years. Is it easier for you to scroll through your phone on Instagram or Twitter and get information that way? Or is it easier for you to sit down and read a textbook? So it's not to say that text cannot be compelling or a written lie cannot be compelling. And I'm sure, again, there's a whole area of study to be done into AI-generated synthetic text and how that could be used as as a way to convince people. But I think to say that somehow visual media is not the most important medium of communication when video seems to be becoming the first source of information for most people in the world, I think is probably intellectually dishonest. Yeah, I think I might be a bit un- unusual in this because I guess I'd probably spend more time. Well, I, I just like don't watch that many videos in the scheme of things. So I think compared to other people, I'm like more more heavy on audio <laughs> and uh, to some extent text. But I guess, yeah, f- from the like engagement hours that, that I've seen, it does seem like video is, is is taking over people's online consumption. And it's one reason we've been thinking about uh, sticking the podcast more on YouTube and try to take videos of the of the interviews is that we think it will get it will get more engagement than, than audio alone. I wonder what we can learn about yeah, where this will go by looking at ways you can create synthetic media that, that have been around for quite a long time. So for a long time, people have been able to, say, take a fake quote from someone and stick it next to a photo of that person and then and then spread that as a meme. Now, obviously, you could never like Photoshop someone's face next to a quote uh, and you know ex- export it as a JPEG and then submit that to a court or get a journalist to believe that they said it. And indeed, I guess most people, if they stop and think about it, they'll realize that it's not really any evidence at all that the person said the thing because anyone could make that effortlessly. They, they know it. They could do it themselves. So, so from that point of view, you might think, well, once people realize that you can make these, these videos about as easily as you can make like a quote in a photo and stick them next to one another, that, that it's not going to be convincing if people stop and think. But it is true, I think, that you know, fake quotes attached to people like do sometimes go viral because they seem intuitively right or people just want to spread that message. And it's like it's a useful, like very short package of information that you can pass around and, and promote your view. So maybe that's that's where we'll end up potentially in you know ten years time with deepfakes is maybe everyone knows if they want to really think about it <laughs> that it's not really evidence of anything. Nonetheless, it's used all the time for people to push their push their agenda. Yeah, but I mean, you just mentioned right now you take a quote, you put a photo of someone, and it goes viral as a meme. People are like, oh yes, Albert Einstein yeah. really said that. Yeah. <laughs> so that shows you. It doesn't even require a very sophisticated manipulation in order for people to believe it, right? We're not even talking about like AI cloning your voice or 
AI recreating you in film, synthetically doing something or AI resurrecting someone from the dead, people literally will believe a quote next to a photo. So when it comes to deep fakery, I mean, I think there are going to be people like there always have been who won't fall for it because they're like, okay, well, this obviously isn't true. And what was the context of this video? And, you know, critical without being cynical. But on the other side, there are going to be many people who do. And this is one reason why like cyber fraud is so prevalent even before AI is into it, because the kind of like, why do you get the emails from the I'm I'm from the Bank of Nigeria and you've won a million dollars and all I need are these personal details and then I can deposit the money in your they exist because some people fall for them. And I think the fidelity and the sophistication of deep fakery will just mean that perhaps the number of people who will fall for it will become wider. Of course there'll always be those who don't. So again, this to me just points out the kind of inherent nature of humanity, which is that there's a spectrum of gullibility. On one side, there'll be the person who believes everything. On the other side, there's a person who's way too cynical that they don't believe anything is true. We're somewhere on that spectrum, you and I, but there will be a lot of people who fall on kind of like the negative side of that and might and might become victims in, or manipulated in a way that they don't even realize or that they, they, they become victim to. Yeah. Yeah. A peculiar upside of this synthetic media technology is that, yeah, in an unusual way, I think it could increase people's privacy, and and I'll explain how. For a while, there's been microphones everywhere, video cameras everywhere, potentially spying on people. I guess there was that Black Mirror episode where uh, people were, you know, hacking into people's computers and then taking videos of them and then using that to to, to blackmail them. And uh, I guess like people do worry about being recorded when they don't realize that they're being recorded. But after everyone realizes that synthetic media is, uh, is is ubiquitous and that anyone can be made to say anything using machine learning, then you know if you're ever recorded uh, saying something that you you know wish, that you didn't wish to make public because it was a private conversation, or if you're ever recorded on video doing something that you didn't want to become public, then you'll be free to just deny it and say, well, this was just created using machine learning, uh, in a way that you know ten or twenty years ago, or I guess forty years ago when Nixon was recorded, you know, conspiring to commit a crime, uh, that that's that simply wasn't plausible. So it's yeah. I don't, I don't know really what to make of this, like whether this is a, a meaningful benefit or not. Of course, it means that, yeah, people can now conspire to commit crimes in private. And then, uh, if, you know, if, if ever the audio comes out, it's not, it's not convincing evidence in court. It's not convincing evidence to anyone. But on the other hand, people who do just want to have more of a private life and don't want people, you know, outing them for having private views that they'd rather not share, they have a bit more, bit more liberty to do that potentially. Do you, do you have any take on that? Yeah. I mean, this is, again, going back to the liar's dividend, right? In a world where all media can be faked, everything can be denied. So undeniably, this is going to give bad actors a lot of scope for (laughs) not having accountability for their actions. We already saw this crazy case of that in 2018, where the president of Gabon, Ali Bongo, had a stroke and was incapacitated. He hadn't been seen for months in public. And his kind of political opponents started saying that Ali Bongo had died and that, you know, they they actually had like a body double in his place and that, you know, there was all this kind of political upheaval in the country as these rumors started to spread. And to kind of hit the nail on the head and bash those rumors, Ali Bongo and his camp decided to release on New Year's Eve his traditional New Year's Eve address on national TV. So he did this address and he looked really strange in the video because he had obviously had had plastic surgery to kind of fix some of the effects of the strokes of Botox. And his face looked unnatural. His eyes were wide. And people watch that video and they're like, that isn't Ali Bongo. That's a deep fake. He's dead. And that led to one week later, an attempted coup d'etat. 
Now, thankfully, that political situation, which was a matchbox waiting to be lit, didn't escalate into violence. The coup d'etat failed. But that shows you the power of the liar's dividend, how bad actors can not only use it to avoid accountability for their own actions, but orchestrate something that is in their own interest, right? Being, oh, that's a deep fake, so he's dead, so let's do the coup. So that to me is quite alarming because another great example is Donald Trump's infamous moment when he arguably then at that time, that was kind of the nadir of American politics where he, you know, the video emerged and he's grabbed about grabbing women by the pussy, etc. And loads of people at the time thought, well, this is it. He's ended his his bid. Like he, he won't be Republican candidate anymore. But, you know, it didn't end his bid. He came out and he apologized churlishly. He's like, it was locker room talk and his supporters forgave him for that. But now he could just say that's a deep fake. And he actually started doing that when that video came up later after 2016. He's like, that was fake, fake news. It's not real. So ultimately, to me, this just means that if you're well-resourced, if you're lawyered up and you have a public platform and you have people who, who follow you, they will probably believe your version of events and you can probably get your lawyers to say that that's fake or it's not true. However, if you are not well-resourced and you're an individual who basically gets blackmailed because someone's made a fake porn video of you. And they're like, if you don't pay me a thousand dollars, I'm going to release this on YouTube and I'm going to put your personal details on it. So it's the first thing that comes up when people Google you, then you're vulnerable. So there's like this double edge to that as well. And I think ultimately it's going to come down to like, how well resourced are you to be able to protect yourself or to push your version of events? Yeah, it is very interesting. I mean, I think I feel in my mind, there's no doubt that Trump, if that came out today, would say it was that it was fake. And I suppose we might just see this happen all the time with politicians now that uh, there'll, there'll be like no audio or video that would be able to convincingly demonstrate that they've done anything wrong. There was another really interesting case in Malaysia, where the economy minister was involved. And this is a country where homosexuality is illegal, right? And you can get lengthy prison sentences for it. One of the ministers in the cabinet, who's a close associate to the prime minister, was involved allegedly in um, a homosexual affair and video leaked. And he just said it was a deep fake. The other man who was involved admitted that it was true. And he got put into prison. But the prime minister's ally just said, this is a political, my political opponent's trying to smear me. And he didn't get punished. But again, this was him insisting that this authentic video was a deep fake. And, you know, he, he, he got away with it whilst the other guy got put into prison. I actually feel like this kind of uh, demonstrates my original point that there's a that there's a potential upside because I don't think there's anything wrong with having gay sex. So, you know, if you had gay sex with this man, I hope he enjoyed it. <laughs> good, good, for, good for him. Uh, and so the, the fact that he's able to deny it because of the deep fake thing is actually good because it's protecting his privacy. No, he could potentially no, 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 do something that's illegal no, dis- but shouldn't be illegal. No, I disagree okay, because whilst I agree with you that nobody should be punished for having gay sex, that's the problem in like Malaysia. I, I'm just talking more about the fact that this video leaked And he, being in a position of power, was able to defend himself, whereas the other guy, who was not in the position of power, got put into jail. So my my point is more about people in power avoiding accountability, not whether or not people should be allowed to have gay sex or not. And obviously, I think people should be allowed to have gay sex. So my problem is more with Malaysia for making it illegal rather than in this context specifically, which has to do about one side being like, this is a deep fake, I had nothing to do with it. And the, the other guy being like punished for it. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. I suppose a question there that we're not going to be able to answer is what would have happened if the other guy had denied it as well and said, yeah, it was a deep fake. It's uh, potentially both of them could have avoided any 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 punishment. 
if they'd both been willing to go along with the same story that it, that it never happened. Sure, but putting aside kind of like our views and we're united on the fact that like homosexuality should be punished or it shouldn't be seen as a crime, you still have a minister who the precedent that sets for accountability, right? Okay, fine. In this case, it's a, it's a video pertaining to a gay relationship. But I mean, what if that was a video of him massacring civilians? And he's mm. like, well, that's yeah. a deep fake. It's, it's not it's nothing to do with me or accepting a bribe. Yeah, I mean... I guess so the overall thing is like being able to deny that video audio demonstrates you've done anything both means that if you really do something bad, you might be able to get away with it. It also means that if society is out to punish you or you know, society does condemn something that shouldn't be condemned, then you're potentially able to get away with that as well. And I guess on balance, it seems like it's it would be better if we were able to like tell what people have done in general. But on the other hand, because society does sometimes condemn people for doing things that are actually not, not wrong at all, it does have this at least like partial compensation that it increases people's people's protection against that. There are like a lot of human rights organizations involved in this space. And one that I would really encourage listeners to look at is Witness. It's a brilliant organization. They've been doing a lot of work on disinformation and manipulated media and deepfakes. But their organization is all about using documented evidence to support civilians who are trying to document human rights abuses in parts of the world where this is very prevalent. And the way that they put it is that there's a very fragile consensus anyway on audiovisual media that's coming from some parts of the world where it's very dangerous and there are lots of human rights abuses. So I think their overall take is that the prevalence of manipulated media and deep fakes will further put human rights activists and civilians in, in danger rather than the other way around. Because ultimately, it's not that people will be able to get away with indiscretions that we think shouldn't be indiscretions. It's more that people in power will be able to twist the narrative in a way that suits them. So I think the deciding factor here is not whether or not you committed something that abides by a moral code we don't agree with, but whether or not you have the power to avoid accountability for your actions. I still think yeah. that's the, that's going to be the more prevalent. The, the dominant effect, yeah. Yeah, let's talk a bit more about the deep fake pornography, which you mentioned earlier. There's this pretty harrowing story about uh, an Indian activist, a woman who was basically completely silenced and driven out of public life by, I guess, what was it, activists who were part of the BJP party, the, the, the Hindu Nationalist Party that is actually currently rules uh, India, who produced, I think, uh, deep fake uh, pornography with, with her face on it, and then used that in order to get her harassed and, and disrespected. I guess there's a lot that we could talk about with deep fake pornography. One uncertainty I have is like, how long will this continue to work as a, a method of, of harassment? I wonder whether over time people will just become so familiar with this and it will become so overplayed that it might just stop being stop being effective, basically, because everyone has seen this. Or people have seen this trick used so many times and they realize that it's not credible evidence of anything whatsoever. And so it might stop having the sting that it has had over the last few years. Uh, what, what, what do you think of that? I think that's a very optimistic outlook because women who've been targeted like this, even before deepfakes were around, right, because the same kind of fake pornography was created many, many years ago, definitely as long as Photoshop's been around. And women who have been put in an act that they didn't commit, right, which is so humiliating and demeaning for them, even if it's not revenge porn, if it's fake porn, their experience has been that it is devastating because it's the first thing that people find of them online. They have no control over it. They don't know who has made this of them. They have no way of Punish, like there is no legal recourse. If you go to the police and someone's made deep fake pornography of you, there's nothing that they can really do. One of the 
craziest things that I found out is that if you look at some of the early deepfake videos where actresses' faces were face-swapped into real porn films, one easier way of getting that content removed was for the porn company to do a copyright claim rather than the actress to be like, my image has been abused in this way. And again, that might get that content removed from one website. But what about the hundreds of other websites or thousands of other websites? And what about the content that's in different jurisdictions? What about if you know who's done it, but because they live in a different country, there's nothing you can do to, you know, they, they get away with it. So for the first point I'd make is that it's deeply damaging, even though it's not something you've actually done. And that's been kind of the unanimous consensus amongst women who've been targeted in this way. The second thing I'd say is that if, again, you are well-resourced, like a Hollywood actress or a politician's wife or a high-powered executive, you probably have resources in place in terms of lawyers sending out cease and desist letters, your PR team that can come out and you know, basically defend you publicly and say, this is all fake. You, you have a chance to get out your side of the narrative. But for a lot of normal women who don't have the access to these resources, it's hugely embarrassing. It is something, if it comes up on a Google search, it's the first thing that people see, you know, it might deny them opportunities for employment. It might deny them relationship opportunities. It often makes them feeling trapped and unsafe to the extent where they're not willing to leave their house because they don't know who's targeting them in this way and why. And another really harmful thing is is how you started seeing this being used against minors. So if you tell a teenage girl where already this kind of malicious content being spread around in high schools, for example, of girls being, you know, filmed doing real sex acts and then that being shared has been devastating to lots of female teenagers. Now, imagine you can get fake pornographic content of them and that's being shared around their peer group it's if you're like oh don't worry about it because it's not real and everybody knows that that's deep fake porn I don't think that's going to be their experience so I, I don't think the sting of deep fake pornography is unfortunately going to cease in terms of how effective it is that seems to certainly be the consensus amongst women who've been targeted in this way seems like we're in very bad trouble then because I guess, yeah, you have this quote from Scarlett Johansson who's been targeted a lot with this kind of deep fake pornography and uh, she's extremely upset about it. But she's basically concluded that trying to stop it is like trying to hold back the sea with a bucket. And it sounds like she's kind of stopped trying. Because it is so hard to hard to stop, we're just, we presumably will just see an awful lot of it. And if people don't get bored of it and it continues to cause a lot of damage to people, then, well, I, I guess as I was saying, it's going to be, it's going to be terrible. I wonder whether, is, is there any way that society can adapt to this? I mean, I suppose like one extreme adaptation would be people thinking that it's not bad to be, <laughs> to, to be in pornography or to be in a, in a sex state. But I suppose that's a, that's a complete fantasy that we're going to reach that, that point anytime in the next few centuries. That is a fantasy because the taboo and the stigma that's associated with this is so ingrained in so many cultures, maybe less so in the West. But even then you hear Western women who are targeted either in revenge porn or fake porn or deep fake porn. This is a spectrum of different types of ways. Like, I guess you could call it image based abuse, whether consensual or non-consensually, whether it actually happened authentic or non-authentically. Going back to the Rana Ayub case, I mean, she is an Indian investigative journalist, right? I grew up in South Asia. I'm a half Nepalese. And she talked about when this fake pornography of her was circulated and 
this was done for a political motivation because she was very critical of the ruling Hindu Nationalist Party. She was somebody who was quite used to being attacked publicly and she was, you know, kind of soldiered on and built a thick shell. But when she was targeted specifically by the porn and whoever made the porn also released her private telephone number, they doxed her. And then she was inundated with messages asking for her rates for sex, threatening her life, threatening to be killed. And what she said was that, That was so different from any other kind of harassment she had experienced before. She went to the police station to show police officers content of her that was circulating. And the humiliation when they were like watching it, sniggering and kind of asking her, you know, are you sure this isn't you was, you know, almost unbearable. So I think the kind of cultural societal kind of taboo around pornography is not something that you know, we can overcome in a day and be like, oh, well, don't worry, because it's just defake porn anyway. So get over it. It doesn't really impact you. And the only way I think we can really start dealing with it is, again, specifically when it comes to defake porn is just understanding that a lot of our kind of methods for recourse, including our whole judicial system, isn't fit for purpose in this sense. Because you can go to the police and they're like, ah, yeah, well, we don't know who made it. And like, you know, what do we do if they're on the other side of the world? Is it actually a crime? Is there anywhere that this falls into the the criminal code or can you sue people for a tort or something like that? There is no national legislation in any country in the world that criminalizes deepfake pornography. There are some state legislative efforts in the United States and here in the UK, there is some discussion about this in the context of revenge porn and whether revenge porn should be broadened out to have applied to deepfake porn as well. But for me, this is again, just a very interesting case study of how in the exponential age, a lot of our institutions, including our judicial systems, the way that we kind of think about crime is no longer fit for purpose for the different world that we now inhabit, right? Where the paradigm has completely changed. We're just playing catch up. And the other thing I'd say about defake porn is there are women who who work specifically on defake porn who are activists and researchers and they're doing amazing work. And they often, and I can understand why, they get really frustrated that when people talk about deepfakes, they talk about, we haven't gotten to this yet, but I'm sure we will, all like the cool applications of synthetic media and how it's going to change entire industries, how it can also be used for good. Or they talk about deepfakes in the context of political information and they get frustrated because they say, okay, well, you're not focusing enough on the real world harm, which is this non-consensual pornography against women. But I would say that, again, this is a spectrum and they're all interconnected. Just talking about political disinformation or synthetic media in its various commercial applications you know, that doesn't mean that you're not talking about how it's weaponized against women. And what's more, this case study of non-consensual porn against women, for me, is a sign of things to come, which is that it's going to become an emerging civil liberties issue. If somebody can take your likeness, if somebody can hijack your biometrics and put you in content without your knowledge or consent, it's going to go way further than porn. It's just that porn is pioneering, just just like the like with the story of the internet, where you know people, it first was basically people were like, oh, what's the internet? So where weirdos go and share porn? That's never going to take off. Again, in this case, <laughs> porn is pioneering, and it tells yeah. you. I think there are lessons to be learned in terms of data privacy and civil liberties. Yeah, I hope to come back to law reform options to try to, I guess, minimize the damage of deepfake pornography and I guess other synthetic media where people's identity is appropriated later on. 
Let's talk a little bit about Russia. It seems like one reason that all of this hasn't caused more chaos than, than it has already is that there just aren't that many you know, well-resourced, coordinated, thoughtful actors in the world whose goal is to cause chaos and cause harm. Like most people, you know, they have their jobs, they have their families, they have things to do, and maybe they troll people online occasionally, but they're, they're not, it's not their day job to go out and, and, and mess with people. But I guess Russia is like, or, or the, you know, Information Research Bureau, the, the KGB successor, they're kind of one of the main groups that does have a lot of money and basically is just out there in order to damage the United States society as much as possible. Are we likely to see other groups that are equivalently skilled and resourced uh, appear over time? Like, will China become the new Russia and be interested in, in sowing chaos in the, in the same way? Or is, are there ways that, you know, private or like criminal organizations might get into this because there's some way of, of making money? Like, yeah, how many people might, might end up working professionally on sowing disinformation? I think the broader point is that modern technology has made disinformation more accessible to a wider range of actors. So whereas perhaps in the 20th century, during the Cold War, you know, an orchestrated, sophisticated disinformation campaign, like the ones that the Russians ran, for example, in the 1980s, where they perpetrated the myth that HIV AIDS was created by the CIA to kill African American people, which, by the way, was a very effective way to manipulate existing tensions within US society around race relations. It required a lot of time. It required a lot of careful planning. It required a lot of careful coordination. However, now when you look at the information ecosystem, a lot more actors are in the game. You don't have to be a state actor to make a piece of disinformation that can go viral and cause real world harm, right? I already mentioned, I think, how Myanmar is a very good example of a country that was basically shut off from this ecosystem. And then in 2014, when the military junta decided to loosen up restrictions and they got the internet overnight, Facebook became synonymous with the internet there. And lots of local groups, monks, ultra-nationalist monks started spreading a lot of disinformation on Facebook about the Muslim minority Rohingya group. And there'd always been this, traditionally had been this communal tension between the majority Buddhist and the minority Muslim Rohingyas. But a lot of that disinformation that was spread by, you know, not a state actor, but by individuals and groups on Facebook helped to lead to the kind of genocide of the Rohingya starting in 2017. So it's not only state actors that have the ability now to orchestrate and disseminate disinformation campaigns. Groups do and individuals do as well. And this has been the democratizing power of technology. But going specifically back to your question about other state actors, there is no doubt that traditionally, when it comes to state-sponsored disinformation or influence operations, Russia has been the most sophisticated. And this goes all the way back to their long history. I mean, the word disinformation comes from the Russian disinformatia, the kind of KGB black ops. It was, it was a terrific way for them to punch above their geopolitical weight, right? Disinformation operations. There was a study by Princeton, I think it's from 2019, which found that it kind of tried to assess state-led disinformation campaigns. And it found that Russia was still responsible for over 70% of kind of the state-led disinformation campaigns globally. However, that balance is undoubtedly shifting the Chinese are definitely becoming more interested in infiltrating Western information spaces. And there was a big transformation starting in 2019 with the protests in Hong Kong. And that's significantly accelerated in the last year, thanks to COVID. 
And you've seen, I mean, some of it is really brazen. The kind of spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry, uh, a lot of Chinese diplomats now have Twitter accounts, given that Twitter is banned within China for the Chinese citizens. I mean, it's, it's, they're not doing it for um, the benefit of Chinese citizens, right? It's it's targeted at Western information spaces. And there was this incident, I think it was, it was a few months ago, where they basically, the spokesperson of the Chinese foreign ministry pinned a very unsophisticated, cheap, fake, manipulated image to his Twitter page, where it showed, I mean, it was like, it was something a kid had done in Photoshop, where it showed a Australian soldier basically holding a knife to the throat of an Afghan boy. And this was in response to a report that had come out saying that allied forces, including Australian soldiers, had had, had been responsible for civilian deaths during the Afghanistan campaign. Now, here there was evidence, a very badly manipulated, cheap fake image of, I mean, it could could the symbolism be any more rife? It's like an Australian soldier standing on the Australian flag, holding a knife to this little boy's throat. The boy was holding a sheep, <laughs> lamb to the slaughter. And that became a major diplomatic incident because they were saying, this is true, like this is your human rights abuses in Aust- Australia. It was like, take down this manipulated image. Otherwise, we're going to, we're going to curtail our trading relationships. So China is newly aggressive in the information operation space. I think it's it's just a new theater of war, right? We've created this information ecosystem where we're all interconnected. And I think it's actually something I'm going to be looking into for my next book. But the geopolitics of this virtual space are fascinating. And not only state actors are involved, other organizations and individuals are as well, but on the state level, yeah, a lot more of all of that. Yeah, that story about the Chinese diplomat creating this obviously fake image of an Australian soldier killing it, killing an Afghan child, it almost causes me to kind of reinterpret all of this because it's so clearly fake. It's, I guess, yeah, they're called these cheap fakes, which is kind of like, you know, dodgy Photoshop where it wouldn't be hard to tell that it's not real. And yet that has a lot of impact. And it suggests to me that it's not so much that well, the issue may be like less that people are getting tricked by sophisticated imagery, but rather just that people can like push their agenda as they always can using emotive ideas, emotive language, emotive imagery. And people don't care about the fact that it's not real because I guess in their mind, well, in this case, I think it does speak to something that really happened, right? Uh, there, there was some report suggesting that Australian soldiers had had killed people when, when they shouldn't have. But it was being used, I guess, as a way of punishing Australia for something that, that they really had done that was wrong. But I, I guess... I mean, I almost wonder, like, is it almost even that wrong? Because the, in as much as Australia was in the wrong to begin with, and then they're using this imagery in order to, like, highlight that fact and make it more emotive, that almost seems within the bounds of reasonable discourse, or at least the, 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 the way people often often talk to one another. Maybe not if they're, like, pretending that it's a real image, but I don't even know whether that really was what, what they were doing. No, they were pretending it was a real image. Oh, they were. Okay. Um, but again, to me, rather than getting drawn into, drawn into like, the ethical considerations about, you know, Western democracies. And there is a problem here, right? Western democracies preaching about human rights and disinformation, et cetera, when, and this is how, like, they certainly see it from Beijing or, like, Moscow, like, you hypocrites, don't you dare lecture us on our human rights record when you guys have been found, you know, your troops have been found guilty of perpetrating civilian massacres in your military campaigns. But there is... A difference, I think, in terms of scale. I mean, what what happened in Afghanistan is reprehensible. Any kind of like civilian deaths, and I'm sure many Western countries were involved in that, is still not on the scale of 
for instance, what is being done in Xinjiang province against the Uyghurs, right? You can see why to the administration in Beijing, it seems very, very hypocritical, and so they want to point it out. But the broader point I was going to make is that it's really interesting how everything has now just become about information warfare, right? Not only between state actors, but even amongst individuals in society. And you see this in the increasingly polarized political debates around the West. And the problem is, if truth or reality doesn't matter then the only thing that matters is the pursuit of power. And if the only thing that matters is power and anything in the pursuit of power is permissible, including sharing manipulated media or spreading disinformation, then I don't know if that's the type of society that I want to live in. But hey, maybe I'm old fashioned because I still believe in like the enlightenment values and like facts and stuff like that. Of course, there'll be people who see it differently. And this is actually one of the really interesting things about the information ecosystem that we're building for ourselves, because it might play out differently in different countries depending on the political system. So for for instance, going back to deepfakes, it's interesting that China is the only country that has outlawed deepfakes outright. And I think that that kind of reactive policymaking is not the way to go, not least because, again, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but not all applications of deep fakery are going to be bad. In fact, there's going to be so many legitimate commercial and even good social good kind of applications. But you are essentially, by passing that legislation, the central government is saying, we are the arbiter of truth. We can tell you if a piece of media is synthetic or not. So if video were to emerge of, say, human rights abuses in Xinjiang province, they can say, well, this is a deep fake, right? So If you have control over your information ecosystem in the unique way that the Chinese government does amongst its own citizenry, where they can kind of control what information they have, this could actually become a brilliant tool of coercion. You have more power to shape the reality amongst your citizenry. And there is like a cultural element at play at here as well, which is that, again, I'm I'm half Nepalese, so I grew up on the borders of Tibet slash China. We're always kind of in fear of our big big Chinese brother across the border, but it's a far more collective society, right? And if the grand bargain has been, look, we're not going to care so much about human rights stuff and individual rights like they do in the West, as long as we as a society feel like we are, our condition is improving, we're growing richer, you know, my children are in a better position than I was or that our grandparents were, then we're fine with like the government having control over the information ecosystem. It could play out very differently in the West, where actually, because of <laughs> free speech and freedom of information, all inf- everybody has the right to disseminate all kinds of information or disinformation. And you see, rather than society kind of being pushed towards a collective direction because of one single narrative that's kind of accepted as true, you have a complete corrosion of society because no one can accept anything as being true anymore. So it could play out differently in different parts of the world. One ray of hope that comes out uh, in, in the book is that as far as we can tell, it seems like Estonia has pretty successfully combated quite aggressive Russian disinformation efforts. I guess Estonia used to be part of the Soviet Union and and Russia kind of use it as a borderline possession or certainly part of their sphere of influence. And they haven't liked the steps that Estonia has taken to integrate with the West. Yeah, can you talk about how they have managed to, I guess, harden their society against disinformation efforts? And maybe, like, yeah, can other countries learn from this and potentially follow suit and make themselves at less risk than they would be otherwise? Yeah, you know, like we have to give like a happy case study of how we can combat this kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, 
the Estonian case study is really interesting, although it is slightly different from a country like the United States or the UK in the sense that it's a small country. It's very homogenous. And they've constantly had this fear of their, you know, the Russian bear on their border and the experience of living during the Cold War under Soviet influence was enough for them that when they became targeted by aggressive Soviet disinformation campaigns in the early 2000s, that they decided to build society-wide resilience against it. So I think the way that they think about their defenses of society is just like cybersecurity in the sense that you think about building you know, a moat around your castle and then you have the inner walls and then you have the outer walls and then you have kind of the ramparts. So you build layers of security so that any malicious actor trying to infiltrate society, you know, there's always deterrence. So this included all kinds of things like digital education, you know, making disinformation studies something that children studied at, at school, having armies of volunteers who would, I think they were called the Estonian elves or something, who would fight disinformation online. There's an actual government strategy for psychological warfare and disinformation operations. So the Estonian case study is interesting because it shows how a society-wide mobilization can be effective in deterring some of the worst impacts of disinformation. But it's also different because then perhaps in the context of what you'd be facing in the United States, because in the case of Estonia, there is a clear outside aggressor, right? But when you're looking at the United States, even though Russia and China and other state actors like increasingly Saudi Arabia and Iran are aggressors, there is also a problem of homegrown disinformation, right? It's lazy and intellectually dishonest to be like, oh, all of America's problems and the election of Trump's due to Russia. And because some people have insisted on pushing and peddling this very simple narrative, the pushback from the other side has been like, okay, this is delusional. Russia did nothing. So the reality is they did something, they intervened, but they're not responsible for all of the kind of problems in American society. And a large, in large part, those problems are because of homegrown disinformation, but not only even disinformation, because there is a distinction to be made between disinformation and misinformation. Disinformation is when it's done by a bad actor with malicious intent. Misinformation is just bad information that spreads without necessarily any bad intent. You know, your naive, I don't know, mother sending you COVID stuff or like everyone who believes in the QAnon conspiracy theory. They're not bad actors. They don't mean to undermine society. They genuinely believe it's true. So it's really complicated. <laughs> the, <laughs> the Estonian case study is definitely a really good one in terms of how to find information operations that are launched against you by an aggressive state actor, though. I guess a possible ray of hope here, another one, is that I suppose I expected in the 2020 election that Russia would intervene and perhaps have a similarly devastating or powerful effect that they did in in 2016. Because in 2016, it seems like the thing they did that by far was the most influential was the hacking of the DNC emails and, and gradually leaking them in a kind of manipulative or misleading way. And I kind of expected, well, why wouldn't they just try to do the same thing in 2020? It's proven itself to work the first time around. And yet, for some reason, they didn't seem to manage to make quite a big splash. And, and I'm curious to think about why that is. And could it be that, you know, US society has has learned this trick and maybe adapted in some ways that has now made it a little bit harder for for, for Russia to persuade, say, the media to, to cover their misinformation in, in quite the same credulous way that they did in the past? 
There's an element of that. And certainly like when the the kind of DNC WikiLeaks Podesta emails was the classic hack and dump, right? You, you hack, you dump, you release. And certainly the media was more responsible in reporting any kind of like unverified hack and dump kind of operations. One of those was like the whole Hunter Biden laptop saga, which didn't take off in the same way that the Podesta emails did. By the way, the Podesta emails are so fascinating because that led to Pizzagate, which then like has taken a life of its own. It's now led to QAnon, which is not only this weird, you know, fringe thing in the United States, but it's become the first global internet cult, right? We, we see it here in the UK as well. But it's not that they didn't try in 2020. They absolutely tried. And they would have tried in the same ways that they did in 2016 by attacking the actual election infrastructure, voting machines, by hacking like they did with the DNC, but also by doing influence operations on social media. And what happened with their influence operations on social media in 2020 was it was similar to 2016, but it was far more sophisticated. So in 2016, you basically had Russian agents sitting in St. Petersburg at the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, who spent years creating fake communities, pages, personas, posing as authentically American, and they played identity politics. So they would fill these groups up with a distinct pride in their identity, and they would make these groups across the political spectrum. So, you know, Texas secessionist and proud, or gun owners and proud, but on the other side, a lot of focus on the African-American community. And over years, kind of like groom these communities so that real Americans started joining them and you instill pride in your distinct identity, racial identity, often by sharing memes, like empowering quotes. And then as they got closer and closer to the election, start injecting these communities with often legitimate political grievances. So in 2016, it'd be like, don't go vote because Hillary Clinton doesn't care about black people. Like, yeah, Donald Trump doesn't either, but neither does Hillary. We cannot quantify how successful those information operations were in terms of actually suppressing the black vote or what it did in terms of impacting the result of the election. If at all, it was a significant factor in an election, which was basically won by Trump by 70,000 votes. But I think, again, it is really intellectually lazy to say that Trump only won because of the Russians, right? There were, so it completely overlooks all the other issues in in American society that led to the election of Trump. I think in 2016, it made such a splash because this was the first time that American democracy had been infiltrated in this way. So it's not that the same thing didn't happen in 2020. My God, the same thing was happening in 2020. And not only that, it wasn't just Russia, like Saudi Arabia was trying, Iran was trying, China was trying. There were far more influence operations that were led by foreign state actors than in 2016. But the other thing, which actually became the headline, and this is what I was arguing in my book, was that the bigger battle would be the domestic information war, right? And you saw that with the president from as soon as COVID. It was like, oh, well, this election is going to be stolen because of the mail-in voter fraud. Right. This was the the backup strategy because he was never going to concede. He was never going to go quietly. This was his way of saving face, which was a disinformation campaign seeded a year, you know, from from the beginning of the year that the election would be stolen. And that led to 
real world violence when we saw kind of the storming of the Capitol on January the 6th. Absolutely to do with the fact that the president and his closest associates had been spreading a lie that the election had not been free and fair. And the pernicious effect of that is that a lot of people still believe that now. And if a Republican candidate wins the next time around, I'm sure the Democrat, like Democratic voters will believe the same, that somehow the election was stolen for them, like they did in 2016, right? They're like, oh, he didn't legitimately win. It was because of the Russians and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it, it does seem like the domestic misinformation is substantially more influential. Uh, I guess I'm not, I'm not sure exactly why. Perhaps, perhaps the volume is just far higher because there's so many more Americans involved in American politics than there are Russians, <laughs> even even if they're, they're, some of them are, are professionals. To what extent is it now the norm for kind of all political campaigns, including ones that you might previously have thought of as being reputable, to use disinformation? And, and do you think that we'll see just basically all political parties potentially using synthetic media to, to push their agenda in future? Or do you think it will remain something that kind of only fringe and like in generally like less trustworthy political groups use? Again, I think all political campaigns, all politicians, all people, they lie, right? This is, a, a, an, again, an inherently human quality. And especially if you're trying to win public office or have a, a place of like leadership in society. That's not to say that all politicians lie or that every human being lies, but it would be incorrect to say that, you know, misinformation and disinformation only became prevalent in politics recently. It's been there for as long as we can remember. But again, the the difference here is that we inhabit a different information ecosystem where there is more of an abundance of mis or disinformation because it, anybody can make it. It's not just well-resourced actors. It can not just be in written form. It can actually be in visual form. It can actually be made by video. And more importantly, trust is becoming something that is increasingly in short measure. So if you are a politician or you're standing on a public platform and nobody trusts anything you say, which is in part to do with the fact that there are so many sources of information in this information ecosystem that there are no longer any monolithic authorities, right? 50 years ago, you'd have like, I don't know, the state broadcaster, the leading political parties, the leading newspapers, and most people in society would have a more monolithic view based on those arbiters of information. That is no longer the case anymore. You could get your information from anywhere in the world. And I I suspect what's going to happen is that rather than placing trust in institutions or political parties, people are going to start placing trust in their influencer of choice. So I think that is definitely going to have an impact on how political campaigns are run. But the basic idea that somehow misinformation is, is like not inherent in politics is, you know, it's just not true. Yeah, it's a funny thing that the, it seems in the US, it has for a long time been acceptable just to lie outright. Whereas the UK has this very funny political culture, where it's acceptable to like completely mislead people about like the substance of what's going on, as long as what you say is very narrowly technically true. So they spend a lot of time like, you know, picking particular start and end dates for statistics or gerrymandering the definition of some statistical term in order to create a completely misleading impression about what's going on. The government last year spent all of this time trying to convince people that they were doing far more COVID-19 testing than they actually were by like, say, counting tests when they were sent out rather than when the tests were actually used, (laughs) but then being very misleading about how they presented it. The fact that there already is so much dishonesty and kind of that people are justified in mistrusting things that lots of authorities say 
Yeah, it does make me wonder, like, how, how much is any of this really different? I suppose I, I feel like I managed to somehow muddle through, despite the fact that lots of people are trying to, to mislead me and to have some reasonable connection to the world and to have some idea of how the UK government is performing, yeah, even though they're trying to mislead me constantly. So yeah, it's, it's possible that the, the future will like not look so, I don't know, superficially it will look different because the techniques are different, but uh, the underlying struggle will be very familiar. Yeah, and I think this again goes back to what I was just saying about how there are so many sources of information now that there are no longer monolithic institutions or parties or people in power who can dominate with their narrative. And perhaps in the past, the fact that there weren't so many sources of information and there were monolithic kind of arbiters of narrative or truth, in a way that made society more cohesive. One of the political implications of this new like information ecosystem is certainly that many people, myself included, you might feel this way as well. I don't really feel that there is a political party that represents my norms or like that stands for what I want. So I think there are just increasingly people who feel disconnected, cynical and mistrusting. And as I already mentioned previously, that isn't necessarily the way that the information ecosystem is developing in other parts of the world, specifically those where there is an authoritarian regime who has more control, is using the kind of age of information to exert more monolithic control over collective narratives. So it will be interesting to see if this develops differently in Western societies, Western democratic societies, than um, in other countries around the world. Yeah, let's talk about that. In the book, it comes across like fairly strongly that you think that these new methods of misinformation and synthetic media are likely to empower authoritarian regimes to, to make it perhaps easier for them to control their populations, maybe make it easier for countries to slip out of being, you know, imperfect democracies into being like partial authoritarian states. That seems very intuitive to me. I wonder whether there's a possible case, though, in the other direction that the ability to just promote all of these different ideas and to create evidence in favor of any position potentially just leads to like social decay and chaos more than it leads to one organization being able to to control the narrative. I guess I don't have a great sense of how good China is at controlling the narrative internally today, like whether there is a lot of, uh, or potentially there's, there's groups like promoting alternative narratives that have some have some purchase in the in, in the population. But yeah, do, do you have any thought on this? Is, is, is there any way that you could imagine that in 30 years time, we'll look back and say, oh, actually, this was just as uh, troublesome, just as problematic for authoritarian regimes as it was for liberal democracies. Whilst not wanting to overstate the power of the Chinese state, I mean, they, of course, have blind spots and are vulnerable. They're not omnipotent. It is undeniable that China has a unique internet ecosystem. And it's undeniable that the state has a lot of control about what can and can't be said or what information can and can't be spread in that ecosystem. And the perfect example is in the context of COVID. If you look at what happened when they first started getting reports of this mysterious virus emerging in Wuhan and how quickly the government was able to censor any information about that virus on all social media platforms. And not only that, but also censor any reaction that was critical to the government censoring this information. There is absolutely no equal precedent in Western society. But, you know, when that whistleblower, I forget his name, but he was the whistleblower, the very brave man from the hospital in Wuhan, he became a national hero for kind of later, you know, sadly, he, he tragically passed away because of COVID. But, you know, at the time when he tried to raise the flag, he was hauled in to see the authorities and was made to kind of sign a statement saying that he had disrupted 
the public order by spreading disinformation and spreading fear. So the fact that the government tried to silence him is not lost, right? He became like this mythical hero within China. Nonetheless, I think my point still stands Again, whilst not saying that they're omnipotent, the kind of control the state does have over the information ecosystem is unique. And it's interesting to see how other countries like Russia are trying to build a information ecosystem or an internet ecosystem that's far more like the Chinese one. Yeah, one thing you say uh, in the book is that it's very difficult, maybe impossible for a democratic country, a pluralistic country to hold together without at least some shared conception of reality of like the basic empirical facts about what's going on in the world. That also seems plausible. I wonder, like, can we think of any counterexamples? Can we think of any countries that somehow have managed to hold together despite being so pluralistic that there's different political groups or different ethnic groups that really just do not see eye to eye whatsoever? So like, I think possibly the Ottoman Empire, the Mongolian Empire, there might be like, are, are there any like very large bodies that somehow managed to, I suppose they weren't democracies, but yeah, how, how, how far can you potentially stretch a, stretch a public while keeping them in the same country? Well, looking at historical kind of examples of huge empires that have held together like cohesively with a strong sense of identity, I mean, obviously <laughs> there's the entire history of China, but that is in large part to do with kind of the domination by the Han Chinese and this strong sense of one centralized collective identity, right? This feeling that the empire is the center of the earth. And in fact, the kind of history of China in the 20th century was an anomaly. And now China is coming slowly to take again its place in the world where it historically always has been. But the other example, of course, because so the Chinese example, I suppose, doesn't work that well in the sense that it's not... Um, not a it's democracy. I, I de- no, no, that the huh? identity that held it together as a cohesive society was not super diverse. It was it was based on the identity of being like Han Chinese, right? It wasn't like, oh, we're united in our diversity and we welcome like all the other kind of different groups. But the real case study of a country that does work being a multi-pluralistic society is the United States, right? The most important democracy in the world, the most powerful country the world has ever seen, the richest country in the world, has traditionally held together because there is a strong sense of Uh, despite all our differences, despite us being like a country of immigrants, we have this American identity. And that's something that's missing in Europe, by the way. This is something which is why, like, if you're French, you feel more French than European. Or if you're British, you feel more British than you do European, which is why kind of the EU has been this failed experiment in the sense that there is no European demos. Whereas in America, you know, a civil war was fought, a war of independence was fought, but there was certainly a sense, okay, we are the United States of America. So it'll be very interesting to see whether this plurality and diversity, which has traditionally always been America's strength, how that will develop in this information ecosystem. And I'm not saying America is doomed at all. You know, this is a resilient country. I think I read a great quote recently, and I, was it Oscar Wilde? Anyway, it was it was a author who had basically said that his death had always been over overreported and that he was still very much alive. Yeah. And I think Yeah, reports of my death are much exaggerated. This is the one. That's true for America. Everyone is always so keen to kind of predict its demise. And I think the latest iteration of this might be like the political polarization which exists, which is real, a real problem. But I don't, if any country, kind of Western country can overcome it, it would be America in my view. 
wonder whether India might be another counterexample. I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's a very diverse country by by typical standards, a huge number of people, different ethnic groups, a reasonable degree of religious diversity as well, and has managed to function as a kind of imperfect democracy for 70 years now, or thereabouts. I suppose, yeah, I don't, I don't quite know enough to, to, to comment about that one. But uh, it's a little bit intuitively surprising that India has managed to hang together as a democratic, fairly pluralistic society for for that long without uh, without descending into into a greater degree of chaos, at least at least to me. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in South Asia, again, between China and India and Nepal, it's this tiny, tiny little country wedged between these two kind of geopolitical giants. But yeah, India prides itself on being the world's largest democracy. But you know, there are communal and sectarian divides that are very, very real. And in India, just like in America, I think, if identity politics start taking hold in a much more aggressive way, then I don't see what good can come of that. And unfortunately, I think that in the West, just like as in countries like India, increasingly identity politics seem to become quite prevalent in the political discourse. So I think that slightly depends on how this develops. Obviously, with the BJP in power, that has led to a lot of kind of discord in India. So it isn't fair to paint India as like a thriving, very successful democracy with no kind of sectarian, really brutal violence, because India experiences this all the time. And I think in a part, it kind of depends on how the kind of identity politics side of the discourse develops. All right. With the rest of the conversation, I'm very keen to focus on kind of what different actors can do to potentially ameliorate these problems and maybe what listeners might be able to do if they wanted to uh, tackle this this broad, uh, broad problem with their career. Because first off, yeah, what law reforms do you think we need to make to allow people to control their identity in this new age? Should we should we make it illegal to make a deep fake of someone without their permission, especially if they're going on, you know, and saying something and endorsing something and you're potentially, you know, misappropriating their trademark or their intellectual property in in, in some sense? I think it's really hard to answer that question because I think kind of piecemeal legislation where you're just like, I'm going to outlaw deep fakes could actually have an adverse impact, right? If you do agree that consent should be a guiding principle in any kind of legislative framework where you're talking about using someone's biometrics synthetically. However, there are so many gray areas. So for example, there's a whole emerging field of political satire using deep fakes. Now, if you're a political satirist, just like a cartoonist, you're not going to get like the consent of the person who you're satirizing in order to make your point. So should that be illegal? Lots of gray areas. And this is why it's so difficult to think about legislative structures around the use of synthetic media. But look, I think it's going to become a really important area because there are so many commercial incentives at play as well here. I don't know if you've seen, but the synthesizing of your digital persona is going to become this huge business, especially if you're a celebrity or a film star or a sports star. You know, you don't have to do the personal appearances anymore. You can get your AI uh, (laughs) avatar to do it and you can just be like clocking in the money without even having to be there, you know, without even having to step in front of a camera. Um, There was a campaign that came out just last week and it was run by Lays and UEFA and it basically features... Uh, Lionel Messi, the footballing legend. And this campaign is so clever. It's called Messi Messages. And it is a website where anyone can go onto and you can generate your own kind of synthetically generated message from Messi, Lionel, to your friend. And it looks like he's speaking to you from his smartphone. So there is a real kind of commercial interest in figuring out 
the legals of this area. And I think what I suspect is that the entire new industries that's going to flourish around this will probably lead the way in terms of the legislation around consent rather than activism or on, on some of the really malicious misappropriations of your identity, like in the case of porn. Yeah, I mean, I haven't thought about this nearly as much as, as you have, but I feel like saying that you can't make synthetic media that is indistinguishable from reality, where people really would be convinced that it's, that it's real without the consent of the person whose face you're using, who you're effectively impersonating. I, I can't think of like that much that would be really valuable that would really lose from that. I mean, maybe it won't really be able to stop the, the deep fake pornography because it's just going to be cross-border. It's like, it's just so hard to police anything on the internet. But it could could reduce it somewhat because the I mean, at least people who are using it maliciously are, are more likely to be in the same country as you and maybe it would be evident who they are because they're someone who hates you and, uh, and, is, and is out to get you. Yeah, um, I can, I can yeah. see that being like a sound guiding principle. So I think rather than the concept of that as like a legal principle, the, the problem will be in enforcement, right? How do you prevent people from doing it anyway, especially if they're in a different jurisdiction? I mean, th- there'll be different rules state to state in the United States, let alone, you know, somebody doing it from, I don't know, a different continent. How, how do you punish them? And what if that person is anonymous? I think the enforcement, just like with all kind of cybercrime, that's more the problem. Yeah. I mean, we're never going to be able to stamp it out or probably you know, even reduce it more than half, but potentially reducing it by half. And especially, I guess, clamping down on the malicious uses that people use against the people they know or you know, their, their, their competitors or political enemies, things like that, where they are likely to be in the same country and law enforcement like might be practical. Seems like it's at least a start. With, and with the, with the satire, I suppose, yeah, I, I want to protect people's ability to do satire, but I don't think for satire, you need, to, you need it to be indistinguishable from reality. Like the standard would have to be that a viewer can tell that it's not real, that, that, it, that it is a deep fake, and then it's permissible. So that, well, that, that seems intuitively plausible to me. So this is why I think there needs to be like a broader debate about labeling as well. So, you know, perhaps not always consent is needed, particularly in the case of satire, for instance, but that piece of media should absolutely be labeled as being synthetically generated. And this entire area is so new that there is kind of no taxonomy decided around it. There's no legal kind of structure around it. And there is a very important conversation to be had around how do you label synthetic media? Because as we've already touched upon, it's not all going to be used for bad. You know, there are going to be so many valid applications of synthetic media that it's important not to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and basically take a technology that's coming, whether we like it or not. It's not only going to be used for bad purposes and have like a very reactive kind of legislative approach to it. Yeah. Are there any other positive uses that you that you want to flag as things that potentially people should work on because they're just good uses of this technology? So obviously I came at this from the angle of like geopolitics and disinformation, but the more I researched it, the more I've been involved in this emerging field for the past four years, the more I'm convinced that this is just a paradigm change in the future of content production, human communication, and human perception. Every industry that uses media and what industry doesn't is going to be touched by the rise of synthetic media. And that's because AI is going to democratize content creation. It's going to make it so much cheaper. You know, by the end of the decade, a YouTuber or a TikToker will be able to produce the same kind of content that's only accessible right now to a Hollywood studio. So that is going to mean so many opportunities for the creative industries. I mean, for for one, entertainment and film are just going to get very, very good. And, you know, you won't need to be a Hollywood studio to produce some really amazing creative content. Another kind of 
real world legitimate application of synthetic media is is a startup that I really, really think is doing fantastic work. They're based in London. They're called Synthesia. And they basically use their synthetic media platform to generate for their Fortune 500 clients corporate communications videos, training videos, educational videos. You don't need to go into a studio anymore and hire actors and get a green screen. Like You can basically create your communications video as easily as though you're writing an email. And you can then on their back end choose to put that out in like 16 different languages with the click of a button, right? So it is going to transform every industry imaginable. I think by the end of the decade, some experts who I was talking to, and it's a really punchy stat, but I think the direction of travel is clear. They think that up to 90% of audiovisual content online will be synthetically generated. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big forecast <laughs> by, by punchy, uh, within 10 years. Punchy stat, but I think that is the direction of travel. And for the real social good example, here's one. There's a company called Vocal ID, which is working on synthetic voice generation to give those who have lost the ability to speak through stroke, cancer, neurodegenerative disease, their voice back. Or, or those who never had the ability to speak can have a synthetic voice. So that, again, this technology is just an amplifier of human intention. It's not only, and it will be, weaponized by bad actors and used for mis- and disinformation, but it's also going to be commercially very relevant, transform entire industries and also be used for good. Yeah, I think Kieran will uh, enjoy potentially being able to uh, just write down uh, what he wish I had said, and then uh, and then get the ML to produce a, a pickup that he can chuck into these episodes without having to having to bother me and get me to to re-record things. Could potentially save him minutes, minutes a week. That already exists. There's a company called Descript that is already synthesizing voice for podcasters. All right, so it, so it takes samples of my voice, and then and then Kieran can, can write on, out whatever he, he wants me to say. It's on rails now, in the sense that. They're building it as a service for podcasters. So I can't just go on there and like take an audio clip of you and then use their software to synthesize your voice. You have to opt in and, you know, get your producer to do that and so on. But obviously there's like a user experience kind of crunch point there. If you need to get consent from everyone to do anything. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. But that as a service for you as a podcaster already exists. I guess, yeah, listeners, if uh, if my intro ever sounds a little bit artificial, maybe it's because I uh, procrastinated too long on recording it and Kieran just got sick of it and <laughs> threw it into Descriptive And then re- redid the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Are there any things that you would like uh, tech companies to potentially do? I mean, more broadly, of course, they have a epic responsibility because they are just these new forms of power in this information ecosystem. And they're not really answerable to anyone apart from their shareholders. And I suppose not all tech companies are built equally, but there are lots of ethical concerns. I mean, I'm very, I find some of like Facebook's position, some of the kind of social media platforms quite problematic, specifically when it comes to deep fakes and disinformation. There is a tendency to kind of do the bare minimum to be like, we're, we're working on this problem, but also not really. You know, Zuckerberg was testifying in front of Congress yesterday. And he basically said, we don't allow misinformation in our ads, <laughs> you know, political <laughs> misinformation in our ads. That's just a categorically untrue, although I'm sure he has like a very kind of convoluted explanation as to like why he thinks that's true. But also because they have the money and the resources to really help build some of the technical solutions. And they are kind of paying lip service to this. So 
Facebook launched, for example, the deep fake detection challenge last year where they they offered a prize of $500,000 for like the kind of researchers who could come up with the best deep fake detector. And then they released training data to help everyone who wanted to get involved in that challenge. But I think the the model that won or something was like, they, they're like, oh, we have like 90% efficacy. But that's just, again, on models that have been trained on that data set. But if somebody really had the resources, including the brilliant minds, like the deep learning engineers, the money, the kind of R&D budget that's necessary to really look into it, I mean, it would be some company like Facebook or Twitter or Google. But, you know, they're engaged to the extent that they have to be, but they could do a lot more. In the book, you talk about a potential, uh, the beginnings of a technical solution where you might have to have some kind of chip installed in cameras or in or in video recorders that will certify somehow that the video was taken at a particular time and location, or perhaps it will sign it somehow with the identity of the person who owns the phone, certifying that this was taken by that person and they they vouch that it that it's real. Yeah, could you talk about? I guess that general technical approach to, I guess, like stewardship of, you know, photos and, 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 and videos and audio that could be used to uh, say, you know, demonstrate to a newspaper that it's real, or at least that one person is claiming that it's real. Look, I think the real long-term proactive solution, if the problem is that we have this information ecosystem where we don't know what's authentic or synthetic, we don't know what to trust anymore, it's the Wild West, anything goes... If you diagnose the problem as such, then the only way to remedy this is to actually build a safer information ecosystem with the kind of the technical solutions right in the architecture of that ecosystem, an alternative kind of trusted information ecosystem. And the way to do that is by authenticating real media. So you can do that in multiple ways. You can either have the technology implanted into the hardware of your device so that, I don't know, if you're a journalist or just anybody, if you take a piece of media, the kind of metadata for that media stays with that piece of media for the rest of its life. So you can always tell, like, where where did this image come from? Where did this video come from? You don't have to, as a journalist, you know, argue about whether your video is real or not, because like the technology can prove exactly where it came from. And that concept of media authentication or media provenance is something that can also now be implemented on via software. And interestingly, there is actually a international coalition pushing for a global standard for media provenance. And it's led by Adobe. It's called the Content Authenticity Initiative. There are brilliant partners involved. There is Trupic, which is like a startup which kind of authenticates images at capture. Qualcomm, the chip manufacturer, they've been around for about 18 months. And in those 18 months, they've already launched like the prototype for a device that will basically authenticate media at point of capture. And they have a really sophisticated kind of roadmap for how you build this authenticated or trusted information ecosystem. I know the the people involved and um, ultimately, as we saw during the pandemic, like if you cannot verify the authenticity of all digital transactions, not just only media authenticity, it's really difficult to do any kind of business at all, right? How does e-commerce work? How does anything work? So you're going to have to have some basis of authentication, not only for all media, but all kind of digital transactions. And I think that's the way to go. I think the bigger challenge is not necessarily the technical challenge, because if you look at what 
the content authenticity initiative is already done in its relatively short life. It's really impressive, including kind of the technology that they've built. And I'm sure they'll build many more technical solutions. The problem is adoption, wide scale adoption and engagement from not only legislators and policymakers, but also some of the big tech companies. It's interesting to see which tech companies are involved, like Microsoft is involved, Twitter is involved. I don't know to what extent, but, you know, like Facebook notably isn't. So I think the engagement and setting the global standard, that's actually the harder challenge than building the tools, the technical tools. Interesting. Yeah. I I mean, I haven't thought about this that long, but it seems like there's something very promising there. So like, for example, how do people know that I've written something? Uh, It probably is because I guess it's on a domain that we control, like 80,000hours.org, or it's on my personal website, robwiblin.com, and they think that only I have the password to put stuff on there, or it's on my Twitter account, and they're like, oh, this this, this sure seems like Rob, and it has been for many years, so probably this new tweet is also written by him. And it seems like maybe we need some more comprehensive system like that, where you trust people, and they have some way of demonstrating that at least they are claiming that they took this video or that they wrote this thing or that this is a, yeah, this is a photo that, that I believe is true. And then if you trust that person or you trust that source, then you think, well, probably this is legit as, as well. And at the moment, we, we have that for some things kind of like, you know, I have a Twitter feed and if I post on there, probably unless my password was stolen, it was legit. But it seems like we need that in a more comprehensive way and a way of like posting all kinds of different things and having archives of that all certified, I guess, maybe using some kind of cryptographic like signature. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. Cool. Okay. So I guess- Blockchain. Uh, it, 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 <laughs> this is where we solve. shout blockchain. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, if that kind of is the most promising way, I'm curious to know whether you know, yeah, of like organizations or universities or, you know, academics maybe who are working on this, who listeners, if they're interested in working on that, or I guess other solutions to misinformation and synthetic media that they could potentially reach out to. I think on the kind of solution side, I think the content authenticity initiative, they've actually just put together this alliance, the C2PA, is the leading alliance and organization on content authenticity. So I definitely encourage you to look them up. In terms of the actual synthetic media generation, there are over like 150 startups that have popped up in this space. From We discussed a few of them today, Vocal ID, Descript, Synthesia. They're so fascinating. So, I mean, if you're interested in like the synthetic future, but not necessarily from a disinformation perspective, but more from a kind of, oh, how is this going to change the future of content production? There are tons of startups that are doing really exciting things that need clever people to think about the ethical ways to apply this technology. From a kind of particular disinformation human rights angle, I would really encourage you to look at the work of Witness. What they're doing is really fascinating. And from the detection side, right, which is also a huge technical challenge, which has to work in conjunction with like media authenticity and provenance. Sensity is a AI startup which has been working on detection solutions since 2018. And I think increasingly you'll start to see some cybersecurity companies. If, if you're thinking about like protecting your business or an enterprise solution to protect your brand or your company from what is very, could be very costly disinformation, not only deep fakes, but just any way that your, your company can be hurt by disinformation. I think there are increasingly going to be cybersecurity kind of offerings in this space as well. Yeah. In the immediate term, do you think that we maybe need more stunts to alert a wider range of people, including people who don't kind of normally normally track these issues to the fact that deep fake technology is, is where it is. So, you know, 
have videos of very famous celebrities who uh, a wide range of people might be interested in, in seeing, like saying things that are outrageous or doing things that are, are outrageous and then maybe like being broken into pieces. <laughs> so, uh, so it's like very demonstrably not real because, you know, obviously people, people like you and I are kind of aware that we can be misled in this way, but there's probably like a, a whole tale of people who are not aware at all that this is going on. Totally. Inoculation is key. It's just part of digital literacy and Education, I hate using that word when people are like, we need to educate citizens, but I used it in quotation marks. So that is key, right? And one really clever way to do it is by allowing people to play with synthetic media in a controlled way that isn't harmful. Dessa, the AI company, did something a few years ago, which was great. They basically synthesized Joe Rogan's voice. Everybody recognized Joe Rogan's voice. And then they created this website called Faux Rogan where you could kind of guess, like, <laughs> is it real Rogan or is it faux Rogan? Who, who, you know, it was like a quiz. I mean, it was just an interesting project that their deep learning engineers were put on as a technical challenge. You know, how can you synthesize his voice? And it, again, this was quite a few years ago, so it took him hours and hours of kind of training data. And then they put some videos on YouTube of Joe Rogan saying, like, crazy things about, like, oh, you know, maybe the singularity is near or whatever. Like, these guys have trapped me in an algorithm. And that got millions and millions of views and plays. So that is, without a doubt, inoculation is part of the solution. However, it comes with a catch. It's a little bit of a catch-22. And that is going back again to this liar's dividend thing. Ironically, the more you educate, again in quotation marks, people about deep fakery and synthetic media and its potential misuses, the more people start to become cynical or critical of all media, including authentic media. So you need to do it, but... It sucks. Yeah. On the other hand, people just might be like, everything's fake, you know? I don't believe that. Like, the amount of times I've had people message me on Twitter or DM me because they see a video that they don't like of, I don't know, Donald Trump doing something or whatever, something to support their own cognitive bias, and they send it to me and they're like, is this a deep fake? And uh, mostly it's not. So it isn't... Deep fake videos are still, when considered in relation to all the other media that exists online, they're, you know, it's a tiny, 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 tiny fraction. That's not to say that synthetic media won't become ubiquitous in the end, though. Do you have any general comments for people in the audience who are interested in using their career to just improve the information ecosystem that we have in general? Are there any opportunities or ways of improving things that maybe people should look into if they're trying to plan out their career or figure out a way to make a difference? I think just in general... You know, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're engaging with Rob and 80,000 hours, you're going to be, you know, exactly the brilliant, intelligent type of person who can dedicate your bandwidth to thinking about some of these issues, because this is just one example of how quickly kind of the exponential tech-led change is coming and how quickly society and politics and everything we know about it is being transformed. And I think it's an arguable point, but I'd be interested in your views on this. But you could make a strong case that in our lifetime, we're going to see more change and disruption led by technology than the entirety of humanity has known before us, right? The entirety of human experience has not been as disrupted as what we'll see in our lifetime. So I think that the understanding about the massive scale, the massive kind of paradigm change that is underway is really desperately needed as a conceptual framework, kind of seeing the bigger picture and how and, and not kind of the reactive kind of like, we need to do this or we need to like introduce a law banning all deepfakes and technology is bad and all social media companies must shut down. 
you know, this, this is what we don't need. We need more proactive long-term thinking and we need thinking that is also networked. So we need people who are brilliant kind of engineers or data scientists to be able to talk to policymakers, to be able to talk to communications experts. That's, that's the only way. It's just, in a way, it's like quite analogous to, to the problem of climate change. The only way you kind of build a solution is by taking a networked approach and you need many different people from many different disciplines to look at it from kind of their perspective. Are there any think tanks with policy or legal research programs in, in, in this area that are worth looking out for? Yeah, there there are loads of programs at universities and think tanks who are like looking at misinformation from a broader perspective, loads of universities. So, I mean, I, I don't have a list on the top of my head, but certainly there are many, many kind of academic and think tanks and institutes that, that are looking into this. Yeah. And I think, like, you know, quick Google can kind of reveal those. Yeah, we'll try to find a, yeah, some programs like that, that and stick up links in the, in the, in the blog post attached to the, to the episode. I know you've got a, got a meeting to go off to in just a minute. I guess in this conversation, it's been a little bit biased towards doom and gloom and uh, things, being, things being terrible, which I guess is, uh, as is our want at 80,000 hours, trying to worry about the world's most pressing problems. We don't get to spend as much time talking about the world's most amazing, wonderful opportunities. <laughs> or, or, maybe maybe yeah. we should consider that as well a little bit, little bit more than we do. Perhaps that's a, a problem with the framing that we have. But I'm curious to know, are there any deep fake or misinformation stories that you think are just legitimately very funny or perhaps heartwarming? Is there any kind of positive side to this that's entertaining? Yeah, I mean, like, so first of all, I think your angle is not wrong because we just live in this age of transformation and it can be very anxiety inducing. And probably the best way to get people to engage is by, you know, putting the fear in them, certainly when it comes to policymakers. But it is also a really, really exciting time to be alive. There are so many opportunities because everything is just going to be done differently, right? All these kind of like legacy institutions legacy ways of thinking, all of these which have developed over centuries and decades for the analog age, all of those rules are being rewritten and scrapped. So yeah, fine. I know it's got a bad name now, but move fast and break things is certainly true in the sense that there are many opportunities. I think what we have to do going forward is think about the ethical implications of this technology, because I don't think it's the technology itself that is bad. It's neutral, right? It's just this amplifier of human intention. But given what we know about our experiment with the internet and how that didn't turn out to be the utopian dream that we had hoped for, that should give us some guiding principles on how to manage the age of synthetic media. And I think ultimately it's going to take some time because if you look at the history of human communication and the technologies that have transformed it, it does take some time for society to catch up, right? Like you had the invention of the modern printing press, which led to the Reformation, which changed the course of world history. And then the next big kind of like evolution or technological discovery when it came to communication was arguably the the invention of modern photography. But there were 400 years between the printing press and photography. Now we're talking about something that has happened in the last 30 years. We have the internet, smartphone, social media. Now we're entering the age of synthetic media. So just the pace of change is so difficult as a society to kind of keep up with. So yeah, I think there are loads of exciting opportunities, but we, I think, need to be, if we can, like try to think about the ethical considerations before we build it, not after the fact. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, to, and to be honest with you, there are many people who are working on that now. So loads of brilliant minds are coming together in that space, which is really exciting and encouraging. 
Yeah, I slightly have the picture that it's like humanity is skiing down a very steep slope at breakneck speed and there's trees everywhere and we have to like skate around them and see see how things can go wrong. But then hopefully if we can make it to the end of the slope, then uh, then we'll have a more more sensible society and much better technology by which to, to make life better. But yeah, it's it's not all doom and gloom. As long as as long as we can stay on a decent track, then uh, then we can hope that our children will have much better lives than, than we do, just as we have much better lives than uh, people in the 18th century <laughs> did uh, by and large. My guest today has been uh, Nina Sheik. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Nina. Thanks for having me, Rob. If you're interested in working on novel ways to do the most good possible, then you might be able to find the right opportunity to do that at our job board. It lists a really wide range of jobs that help you work on pressing global problems or to build the skills necessary to, to do that in future. As I write this, it has a total of 462 current vacancies listed, including 45 on other problem areas, which would include roles working to combat disinformation, among many other things. It also lists 195 policy roles, 15 assistant roles, 91 management roles, 348 for people with an undergraduate degree, and 66 roles for people with five or more years of experience in a given field. So go take a look and use the filters to narrow down to the jobs of greatest interest to you. You can find all that at 80,000hours.org slash jobs. Finally, I just want to highlight one role in particular. The Council on Strategic Risks are calling for applications for their Fellowship for Ending Bioweapons. It goes for a year, and you would be working with leading experts committed to biological threat reduction, including former guest of the show, Andy Weber, who helped dismantle Cold War-era bioweapons programs. At the end of that year, you should have deep knowledge of what it will take to end bioweapons programs and a strong network among biosecurity and biotechnology experts. Applications due by 5pm EST on April 7th, 2021. And you can find out more about it at councilonstrategicrisks.org. We'll include a link in the blog post associated with this episode, as well as episode 93, Andy Weber on rendering bioweapons obsolete and ending the new nuclear arms race. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering is by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our site and made by Sophia Davis-Vogel. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.